I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. If one were to ask the person on the street what he or she thinks of Julian Assange, it's a pretty sure bet they would not exactly be positive. He's been steadily portrayed by the mainstream media as no friend of the United States, possibly a traitor, certainly not a legitimate journalist. The campaign against him has been relentless and exceptionally effective. Now, after being forcibly removed from the Ecuadorian embassy in London, shockwaves continue to flow after the American Justice Department stunned the world by deciding to use the antiquated 1917 Espionage Act against him. The act has been judged by historians and justice advocates as shocking and shameful, as what it was was a vicious crackdown against critics of U.S. entry into the First World War. It was one of the most serious attacks on freedom of speech and freedom of the press in American history. To revive it now and apply it to the Assange cases, as our guest today, Ben Norton, has written and is echoed by many freedom of press advocates around the world, quote, it is far from hyperbole to say that the U.S. government's crackdown campaign against Julian Assange is one of the gravest threats to press freedoms in modern history. This indictment on espionage charges augurs the start of a dramatic crackdown on freedom of the press across the board. And that should be of concern to every American, liberal, conservative, anybody who believes in who we are as Americans. Ben Norton is a journalist and writer. He's a reporter for The Gray Zone and the producer of the Moderate Rebels podcast, which he co-hosts with Max Blumenthal. His website is bennorton.com. His new article at The Gray Zone posits that, quote, Trump's charges against Assange are historic attack on press freedoms. Media and Obama help set the stage. Well, there's a lot to talk to. Ben Norton, thanks for being with us on Keeping Democracy Live. Of course. Thanks for having me. Julian Assange seems to be the person everyone now, right and left, loves to hate. Why is that, do you think? Well, I think there are a variety of reasons. And first of all, I think Assange has welcomed that bipartisan hatred uh, because he has always refused to toe bipartisan lines. And you can see that very clearly in the way he has operated and, and talked about politics, but also WikiLeaks. Although we need to be clear, WikiLeaks is a larger organization. There's often been an attempt to portray WikiLeaks as if it's just one man, Assange, but it's much larger. That's true. And he has had many colleagues who have done great journalistic work as well that are a great benefit to all of us around the world. But Assange himself, he has been avowedly nonpartisan, pushing back against the orthodoxy of both 
Republicans, Democrats, of really anyone. Of course, it goes without saying that Assange is not American. He is not a U.S. citizen, which is also why what the Trump administration is trying to do is even more outrageous because they actually, under international law, have no jurisdiction to do this. They have no control over this man who's now a U.S. citizen. And that's also one of the reasons that multiple countries have refused to extradite Assange to the U.S., including Ecuador, which is where he originally, right. of course, sought, sought refuge, and you can talk more about that. But Assange was pushed back against in the 2016 campaign, both Trump and Clinton, although you wouldn't really know that from a lot of the corporate media reporting on Assange, which portrayed him as if he was pro-Trump and a cat's paw for Trump. He also criticized Trump, and in an interview, and he referred to choosing between Trump and Clinton, Clinton as, as essentially analogous to choosing between two different diseases. So, I mean, it's pretty extreme, uh, that, that comparison, but he always welcomed that kind of controversy. And that's clear in his journalistic work, because he leaked government documents, not just from the U.S., but from Russia. And now there's an attempt to portray WikiLeaks as some kind of Russian operation without mentioning conveniently that WikiLeaks actually published Russian government secret documents that detailed the Russian government's mass surveillance program. WikiLeaks also leaked government documents from Saudi Arabia and from Turkey and from numerous other countries. But finally, to answer that question briefly, the real reason, above all of that, regardless of what he has said, regardless of what he has done, the real reason Assange is hated so much by those in power is because Assange did what many journalists are not willing to do. He actually challenged power where it, where it really resides. He challenged the military-industrial complex. He challenged the war machine, and he actually exposed what the U.S. government has been doing in its wars in places like Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria and Libya. That is the real reason he has hated so much by people in power, both Republicans and Democrats. And the mainstream media, once again, seems to go along with that uh, quite eagerly and just continue to portray him. Uh, interesting, as a, a Russian stooge, basically, not as a journalist. That is fascinating how, quite frankly, Ben Norton, this is the first I've heard that he leaked stuff from Russia and Saudi Arabia. That, that doesn't fit the picture <laughs> that is being uh, portrayed of uh, Julian Assange. That, that's really uh, uh, fascinating. Now, I understand the United Kingdom has... Uh, its charges. They they pulled him out of the Ecuadorian embassy where he stayed for seven years or so. And they have the option of extraditing him to the United States to face these charges. For what was he arrested in London? And, and how does it look in terms of the likelihood of them agreeing to the extradition? Well, the case in London is clearly a politicized case. He was officially sentenced to 50 weeks in prison for skipping bail. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about why that actually happened, and the United Nations criticized this, this particular sentence of, of 50 weeks in prison for skipping bail, which is a very minor offense. And it's 
a quick note here. It's very important to talk about the United Nations in this because even media outlets that are more progressive and alternative have frequently ignored what the United Nations has said, the United Nations human rights experts. But they have repeatedly said now since the beginning of 2016, so for about three and a half years, that Assange has been a political prisoner, that he has been unjustly and arbitrarily detained, and that he must be released and paid compensation, not only released. Of course, that has been largely ignored. This most recent case, in which a British judge sentenced him to 50 weeks in prison, that was also criticized by UN human rights experts. But at the same time, what's interesting is that the UK has claimed that it will not extradite anyone to countries where they're at risk of the death penalty, because the UK government, which is slightly more civilized than our government, does not believe in capital punishment. And they have actually, thus far, they have stayed by that agreement. Now, if they did extradite Assange to the U.S., they would be violating their own domestic law by sending him to a country where he could face a death penalty. And then, of course, there's the business in Sweden, where he's facing now there might potentially be new charges over sexual allegations. But even those have been misunderstood and misreported on. So, for instance, these first go back to 2010, 2011, but originally there were never actually any charges against Assange, although that has been misreported. There were two women uh, who said that they had a sexual encounter with Assange, and but they were not accusing him of sexual assault and rape. They said that they had, you know, they had sexual intercourse and they wanted him to take an STD test. And one of the women, in fact, said that she had felt railroaded, which was the language she used, railroaded by police into trying to turn it into a larger case and trying to charge Assange, even though she did not say she wanted to charge Assange. And in any way, that kind of escalated. And then there was a Swedish prosecutor who was a woman um, who was a feminist prosecutor, and she looked she looked and did an investigation and looked into the case and then quickly closed the case without ever filing charges. And Assange and WikiLeaks, his lawyers, made it very clear for years that they were totally willing to go to Sweden and agree to to meet with the prosecutor to try to to finally close this case. They have been saying that for years, but the Swedish government refused to promise Assange and WikiLeaks that they would not extradite him. So WikiLeaks and Assange said that this was clearly an attempt to trap them and extradite them where they would face the charges we see now, which is nearly 200 years in prison. So Hmm. those details are kind of complex, of course, but they have been really misreported in a lot of the media reporting on this to portray Assange as if he's, he's trying to flee justice. Although, as I said again, Assange and what WikiLeaks said very clearly that they were willing to meet with the Swedish prosecutors, but it was actually the British government working with the U.S. government that was dragging its feet. And we actually now have, we have leaked documents and reports in the Guardian newspaper that show that 
It was actually the British government that was pressuring the Swedish prosecutors to drag their feet as much as possible and to drag out this case for years. The Swedish prosecutors wanted to officially close the case with Assange and move on, but the British government forced them to keep doing it longer and longer and longer. And then not only that, an even bigger scandal is that the Guardian newspaper reported in Britain that the British government ended up deleting documents showing emails showing how the British government was pressuring Sweden to continue prolonging and, and dragging out this case. So there are so many levels of misconduct and of controversy and scandal and corruption involved in this case, and we barely scratched the surface of that. Interesting that, uh, you know, why he has been singled out, you know, the way he looked being dragged out of there. And, you know, you hear stories about his lifestyle within the uh, Ecuadorian embassy. He he looks bad, you know, he's sort of made to look bad. But why would, you know, the British government and especially the U.S. government care so much? I think when you talked about journalists and leaks, that's what journalists do. Their job is to ferret out information that some people don't want us to see and to publish it. And I just I find that fascinating that, you know, people say, oh, he's not a journalist. But what about that? I mean, as you say, WikiLeaks is not just Julian Assange. It's a bunch of a bunch of people who work there as journalists, I believe. Absolutely. And there's always this an attempt with anything, not just with WikiLeaks, to try to reduce an institution that the U.S. government doesn't like to one person to demonize the institution. And look, like I said, Assange is someone who likes controversy. He has someone who has intentionally stoked controversy. He is a very controversial guy. So I get why people might not like him. He sometimes says things that that piss people off on all sides of the political spectrum. I get that. I get why people might have critiques of him and might not like him, but this is not about him. Right. This is about his whistleblowing journalism organization, and he is not being charged and potentially thrown in, in a dungeon for 200 years because of who he is and what he said. He's potentially going to face li- multiple lifetimes in prison because of what they published at WikiLeaks. Uh-huh. And that's that's the thing, is that, uh, you know, for a long time, I mean, for most of American history, people have really appreciated journalism and whistleblowers. They've been something that, you know, we take pride in. Some, some great movies have been made about uh, whistleblowers, and there's too few of them, in my opinion, today. And I would think that maybe the purpose behind, you know, focusing on this one guy is to send a message no more whistleblowers no more leaking you can go to jail for the rest of your life and beyond that that that's the real uh message to 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 chill freedom of the press now i want to look at uh the the roots of this this espionage act that's really interesting and you know it's it's it was a surprise to charge him uh with the 1917 Espionage Act. That really shocked pretty much everybody. Let's talk about what that was in 1917, the circumstances of this clampdown on dissent. And it was a clampdown on dissent 
and immigrants as the U.S. deciding was deciding to send men into the Great War, which, of course, was the First World War. What was its purpose, its effect, and its legacy, the 1917 Espionage Act? Well, what's interesting is in order to understand this law, we have to understand World War I. I'll begin there. The thing is, these days, many people born well after World War II, they kind of see World War I as a sort of prelude to World War II, as if it was the lead-up to the Great War against German Nazism and Italian fascism. But that's very misleading. In fact, World War I is really what helped give birth to fascism and allowed fascism to take control in Germany and Italy and Spain. And... In that sense, World War I is a, a grossly evil war. There was nothing good in any way about World War I. It was a senseless war, what W.B. Du Bois famously said was a war for empire. It was a war between the European colonial powers and the U.S., all fighting over empire. Yep. It was not about freedom and democracy. It was not about defeating fascism. World War II was a unique war that was an anti-fascist war yeah. against genocidal Nazi and fascist regimes. World War I was extremely unpopular, and it was also a war that Americans can't really imagine today, but it was a conscription-based war where people, they didn't volunteer to go fight against you know, going to fight in Europe against the German Empire, against the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And this was a conscripted war, and it was very unpopular. And the people at the time leading the resistance against World War I was the left, were, was the growing socialist movement. So most famously, you had Eugene Debs. Yes. Eugene Debs is someone who has largely been erased from history, but he's coming back now with people like Bernie Sanders. Debs was the leader of the Socialist Party of America. He was a firebrand speaker. He was an incredible labor organizer. And Debs, who ran for president from prison, actually got something over like a million votes. Right, he, right. running on the Socialist Party ticket, ran from prison. Why was he in prison? Debs was imprisoned because he spoke out against World War I and told workers and said, don't go and fight in this war. Your enemies are the capitalists here at home. And, of course, that terrified the U.S. government. Also, other people who were charged in the Espionage Act included Emma Goldman, yes. the famous anarchist who was against World War I, and then her lover, Alexander Berkman, another famous uh, anarchist. So this, this law was passed in 1917, the Espionage Act, expressly as a political weapon to imprison people who were speaking out against World War I. And it was part of the, the first Red Scare. We talk a lot about this, the Red Scare after the, the Second World War, which is an, an incredible war when you think about it, because the U.S. actually allied with the right. Soviet Union against fascism. And the Soviet Union, 26 million Soviets died fighting Nazi Germany and defeating Nazi Germany. But then, of course, after World War II, history is kind of rearranged and, and changed, and we think of it differently, and then the Soviet Union becomes the bad guy. Well, there was a first Red Scare, and in 1917, you have the, the Soviet Revolution, yes. and you have the, the Red Scare in the U.S., and the imprisonment of these leaders. Now, I'll fast forward a bit. 
The Espionage Act still exists today, of course. It was also used during the Cold War, most famously against Julius and F. Rosenberg, oh. who, you know, this is still disputed today. It's possible that Julius might have been a Soviet spy, but Ethel certainly was not a Soviet spy. But during the early years of McCarthyism, you had a kind of anti-Semitism that was mixed together with anti-communism, and these people were sentenced, these Americans, Julian Ethel Rosenberg, were sentenced under the Espionage Act and actually executed. Yes. And then finally, fast forward to the Pentagon Papers and Daniel Ellsberg, and then to the last 10 years or so, and then you see that the Espionage Act has kind of shifted. The socialist and communist movements are no longer the direct target. Instead, now the Espionage Act is being used to go after whistleblowers. So it was used against Daniel Ellsberg, who famously leaked the Pentagon Papers, showing what the U.S. was doing in Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. And then finally, against Chelsea Manning and Julian Assange. And, and also Edward Snowden, but of course Edward Snowden took refuge in Russia, which has only it's fueled this kind of Russia mania and said, oh, this is all a Russian conspiracy. Right. And actually, no, Edward Snowden wasn't planning on going to Russia. Edward Snowden actually originally wanted to go to Ecuador, which is the country that gave Julian Assange asylum, but, his, but, but Edward Snowden's passport was withdrawn while he was in air on the way to Russia, where he was going to connect to Ecuador. So he was stranded Oops. in Russia. So anyway, that those explain those are the targets throughout history of the Espionage Act. And what's really wild about this is how it shifted now. And in the past ten years or so, with the Obama administration and now Trump, the Espionage Act has been used exclusively to target whistleblowers who are trying to expose what U.S. intelligence agencies and, and the military are doing abroad in the name of Americans, violating both international and domestic law. Oh, we have to be protected from the truth, don't we? If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. Our show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and our guest today is Ben Norton, who writes for uh, Gray Zone, and he's got a new article uh, that's titled, Trump's charges against Assange are historic attack on press freedoms. Media and Obama helped set the stage. Well, what was the truth? What was hidden that Chelsea Manning and Julian Assange made public that so upset the American government? Well, they, they published files showing what the U.S. government was actually, the U.S. military was actually doing in Iraq and Afghanistan. And one of the most shocking revelations that has gotten a lot of attention is this collateral murder video where you see that right. the U.S. military was actually bombing civilians, including Reuters journalists who also died in this attack, with no regard, really, with this complete disregard for civilian life. And of, it's not even just Iraq and Afghanistan. I mean, the, the actual charges are, of course, linked to what Chelsea Manning re released. And now Chelsea Manning is actually back in jail because Chelsea Manning, much to her great credit, she has refused to testify and refused to re reveal information and is actually, volu I mean, voluntarily is not the right word. She doesn't have to be in jail. She could give in and spill the beans. But 
she's been very brave and has refused to do that. So she, they're putting her in jail. I mean, that, that's, of course, a kind of compulsion that's pressuring. It's not of her own free will. But what I'm saying is that if she wanted to throw Julian Assange under the bus, she could, and she's refused to do that. So it's not even just Assange who is, is incarcerated right now. But, yes, the actual charges are related to Chelsea Manning, and the, the Justice Department under Trump, and specifically John Demers, who's the head of the uh -huh. National Security Division of the Justice Department, Demers claimed that Assange is conspiring with Chelsea Manning, and that specifically Assange helped Chelsea Manning steal classified information. But what WikiLeaks says, of course, which is true for all of its leaks, is we had nothing to do with getting that information. All we did is publish the information. Someone else gave us the information, and then we published it, which is why people like the American Civil Liberties Union, the head of the journalism school at Columbia University, and many other leading voices who are mainstream voices. That's why they have all voiced great concern over what this could mean, because there's no evidence whatsoever that Assange had anything to do with Chelsea Manning leaking these documents, taking these documents. The all we know and all that is likely true, because that's what WikiLeaks has said, and that's what Manning has said, is that all they did was publish it, which means that any... If this goes through, any news outlet that publishes stolen information from the government can be tried under the Espionage Act in the same way. And that's why, again, finally, that's why the U.S. government is trying to use this Chelsea Manning case. It's not the only reason that the U.S. government hates WikiLeaks. In fact, there have been more important leaks since then. The documents, the collateral murder video, all those things from the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, those were very damning, but it's not necessarily surprising. People knew that the U.S. was carrying out war crimes. What's more frustrating to the U.S. and to the U.K. and European governments is that WikiLeaks has published CIA documents, for instance. Uh, specifically, the, uh, WikiLeaks published Vault 7, which was a major trove of CIA hacking tools that revealed some of the tools the CIA was using to spy and hack on people, which also revealed, for instance, that, that things like TVs, computer monitors, computers, all of these screens, often inside the, the company itself, before it even comes to the consumer, there is a built-in backdoor that allows the CIA to spy on people. And that's not just domestic, it's also abroad. And, of course, WikiLeaks, like, a, like Snowden, uh, was involved in helping reveal information about what the NSA was doing and U.S. government mass surveillance. And not even just that, WikiLeaks published a lot of U.S. diplomatic cables showing how diplomacy was often a kind of fig leaf for militaristic foreign policy, sitting in places like Venezuela mm. and even in Ecuador and Brazil, where these, these countries that had kind of right-wing coups, how the U.S. was helping to encourage and work with these coups, the war in Syria, the war in Iraq. I would welcome anyone who's listening to this to read a really fascinating book that was published by Verso, which is a left-wing book publisher 
called The WikiLeaks Files. The WikiLeaks Files is an incredible book that really has, uh, it's like 400 pages or so, and it has each chapter is devoted to a particular different conflict or country. And they had an expert who went through all of the WikiLeaks documents and then wrote an entire chapter of the book on Iraq, Syria, Venezuela, Afghanistan, Ecuador, all these different countries and, and places and topics, and used the WikiLeaks files to show what we learned about those countries. So those are the reasons why, yes. he's, why Julian Assange is public enemy number one. Hmm. And the Chelsea Manning case is what the U.S. government thinks is the most strategic opportunity to try to, to imprison him and say, oh, we're not imprisoning him necessarily just for publishing this information, but because he supposedly conspired with, with Manning, which, right. of course, he says is not true. Uh, and it's so much, it, it's, it's such good theater to have some bad guy and that the public can, you know, love to hate and get the attention off of the actual crimes that the U.S. government is, in fact, committing, like that collateral murder video, like all these different uh, coup d'etat uh, through, through the many, many years. The government, I can understand why they want to get the attention away from that, which brings up the question. In that video that was shown, the collateral murder, they committed murder. What happened to those responsible? Do we even know? Has to be. I mean, those are those are real serious crimes, killing innocent people. What what's happened with those people? You know, here we are focused on this other stuff, the whistleblowing, telling the truth about it. But what's happened to these guys? Unfortunately, nothing. And I wish I could be surprised, but when you look at what happened to groups like Blackwater, the mercenary group that was hired by the U.S. government and that that carried out a massacre of civilians in Iraq, and they were slapped on the wrist. And now we see that Eric Prince, the founder of it, just founded a new company. He just folded Blackwater, he founded a new company, and he's working closely with the Trump administration. In fact, his sister, DeVos, is the head of education in our country now, and she's oh, privatizing public schools. Yeah. So when we look at the collateral murder video, I mean, those were U.S. soldiers, and unfortunately, no, there has been no serious... Uh, reconciling with that fact. Instead, the U.S. government went after Chelsea Manning for exposing it. Right. So we see again that after the U.S. military not only killed Iraqi civilians, not, not to discount how horrific and criminal that is, but also two journalists from Reuters. And nope, no serious consequences, slaps on the wrist. And what this shows again is that the real reason that the U.S. government wants, and not just the U.S., I mentioned in Britain, I mean, other European governments, and many governments throughout the world, they don't like WikiLeaks because it encourages people to report on their actual crimes in war right. and their actual crimes abroad. And, and that's kind of, if you look at the way US, the U.S. media functions, there's a kind of agreement made I'm not saying that it's signed on paper. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that it's a real physical agreement, but there's a kind of understanding between journalists at large corporate media outlets like the New York Times and Washington Post that 
they have a kind of symbiotic relationship with the U.S. government. And if you look at national security journalists, the idea is you build up sources in the Pentagon and the CIA and the FBI, and then they'll leak information to you. They'll show and share information to you. And then you publish information that is in the public interest but doesn't damage the U.S. government's own interests. Well, they certainly... So the idea- I was just going to say, the, the, the news uh, media, the mainstream media, they depend on advertising. Pfft, they don't want to upset their okay. advertisers. You know, that's, that's... Well, there's two things happening. There's the corporate media outlets themselves. They're, the reason I say corporate media, I don't like sure, the term mainstream because it's very vague. It's ambiguous. Good point. Their corporate media, yes, their first and primary goal is to return on investment. It's yeah. the return on investment. It's yep. to make money. Yep because it's their corporations, and they do that through advertising, of course. So there's no question about that. But there's also, as was famously shown in the book Manufacturing Consent mm. by Noam Chomsky and Edward Herman, they did a kind of scientific analysis of the symbiotic relationship with what you could call the national security state. Yes, And we is. can see this very clearly in how the New York Times and Washington Post have not opposed a single war since Korea, they, these newspapers have supported the war in Korea, the war in Vietnam, the first war in Iraq, the second war in Iraq, the war in Syria, the war in Libya. There's, and then there might be some criticism of the war after it happened. Right. <laughs> but these newspapers all help to sell these wars for a variety of reasons, whether it's through Iraq WMDs, now this new attempt to wage war in Iran, and the same media that rightfully uh, will criticize Trump everything he does, and it's good that they do that, but when Trump wants to wage war in Iran, and John Bolton wants to wage war in Iran, yeah. now suddenly the media is much more sympathetic, and they talk about the Iranian threat. So the thing is, that kind of symbiotic relationship is broken by groups like WikiLeaks, who don't have a loyalty to the national security state in the same way. And that is really, that is their ultimate sin. And I think that's what that consensus that most other corporate media outlets still abide by. I think that's what Thomas Jefferson had in mind, uh, and I occasionally agree with him uh, about uh, the press being so necessary, more important actually than than government. To, you know, we need a press to reveal the ugly truth from time to time. Of course, he's dismissed. Uh, Pretty regularly. Uh, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a group effort, folks. Our guest today is Ben Norton, journalist and writer for uh, Gray Zone. He's got a new article, Trump's Charges Against Assange Are an Historic Attack on Press Freedoms. Media and Obama Help Set the Stage. And we'll get to the Obama uh, question in a few minutes. But as one might expect, the ACLU, American Civil Liberties Union, which was created as a direct reaction to the 1917 excesses of the Espionage Act that created the need for the Civil Liberties Union. They're standing firmly for the First Amendment in this case. I want to read a statement from Ben Wisner, who's director of the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. He says, for the first time in the history of our country, the government has brought criminal charges against a publisher for the publication of truthful information. This is an extraordinary escalation of the Trump administration's attacks on journalism and a direct assault, direct assault on the First Amendment. 
It establishes a dangerous precedent that can be used to target all news organizations that hold the government accountable by publishing its secrets. And it is equally dangerous for U.S. journalists who uncover the secrets of other nations. If the U.S. can prosecute a foreign publisher for violating our secrecy laws, there's nothing preventing China or Russia from doing the same. Your comments, please, on on what uh, ACLU has to say. Well, the ACLU put it perfectly, and it's not just the ACLU. You know, I do have some criticisms of the group. I don't always agree with them. Like, they have a very particular view of free speech, and they'll even support extreme far-right groups. And yes, but but that's but it's 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 actually admirable that the ACLU is that consistent, and they really have taken up this issue. And if, if it weren't for them, I would be terrified as a journalist because, like you said, the implications of this are mind-boggling. And I'll add really quickly, just to underscore this point, Julian Assange is not a U.S. citizen. So I mentioned in my piece that the Trump administration is breaking two records with a dubious distinction for the first time in history. The Trump administration is both sentencing a journalist under the Espionage Act and a non-U.S. citizen under the Espionage Act. So what the U.S. is really saying and what Trump is saying is that we control the entire world. Not only are, are we the policemen of the world, we're the, ju- we're the judge of the entire world, and we can, any person around the world, whether it's a French journalist, a South African journalist, an Indian journalist, a Russian journalist, if they publish information about our government that we don't like, we now have the authority to try to imprison for two lifetimes that journalist. Wow, that is uh, that that's rather uh, chilling as well. And you know these these charges at this point are just against Julian Assange. To some, it may look like Chicken Little running around saying the sky is falling, the sky is falling. When people say the next logical targets will be such outlets as the New York Times, the Washington Post, and many other publications. Uh, Barry Pollack, who's uh, Assange's defense attorney, says this is a wholesale attack on the freedom of speech, the media, and the First Amendment. Are such statements not an overreaction? I mean, the Washington Post, the the Boston Globe, they all published, for example, the Pentagon Papers. Uh, Is this intended to be chilling on them as well? Well, times have changed. And the thing is, a lot of these newspapers... I'm not sure about their editorial process when they published the Pentagon Papers, because it was a different time. But these days, for instance, when these newspapers were publishing documents from Edward Snowden, they would often reach out to U.S. government agencies and ask those agencies what information they should redact in order to protect U.S. national security interests, as they put it. So, like I said, they still have this kind of unspoken agreement where they won't cross the line and go too far. WikiLeaks, they, they have a, a very libertarian view yeah. of publishing. They redact very little. So this, we're in new territory here, but it's not in any way hyperbolic. Because like I said, it's not just the ACLU, which has a very libertarian view of this, that, that's saying this. Even the New York Times editorial board agrees and has spoken out about how dangerous this will be. And it goes without saying that the New York Times has 
relentlessly attacked Julian Assange and honestly published some false information. The attempt to portray WikiLeaks as a Russian agency, right. or, uh, WikiLeaks as some kind of Kremlin front group, was really ridiculous. I mean, there's no evidence of this, and we know that because the New York Times published a story, which I mentioned in my article, which was kind of hilarious and how ridiculous it was. When Assange was, was first arrested by the British government, the New York Times published a story, and it said, with Julian Assange's arrest, the, the words were, Russian mysteries remain. And what they're acknowledging right. is that they really don't have any no. firm evidence proving right. that WikiLeaks is some kind of Russian operation, because it's not. Now, it's potentially true that maybe they did get information from Russian intelligence and then published that information. But WikiLeaks has been around for, for nearly 20 years now. It was founded by kind of libertarian-leaning sure. tech people from uh, multiple countries, and they're independent. But anyway, that, that's, I'm digressing. That, that, that stuff is important, but the main point is, no, it's not hyperbolic at all to say this. Even the New York Times and Washington Post which have criticized WikiLeaks and Assange, even they now are warning that this case challenges and threatens their own reporting, which is the point I was making in my article, that some of these same media outlets that have been demonizing Assange with questionable information, these same outlets are now warning that this campaign that they had a hand in fueling can come and backfire and hurt their own journalists. And if we don't have a free press, my goodness. I mean, Trump clearly, you know, he loves brutal dictators. He just adores brutal dictators. And, you know, he just, he wants to be one. And, uh, you know, I, I happen to hope anyway that most Americans still value freedom of the press and that we wouldn't be willing to give that up. But this is a real threat on freedom of the press. And, Ben, you write that the U.S. war on dissident journalism, like most American wars, has been thoroughly bipartisan. Your article quotes James Risen, who was himself a target of of, uh, Obama uh, administration repression, wrote in the New York Times in 2016, if Donald Trump decides as president to throw a whistleblower in jail for trying to talk to a reporter, he will have one man to thank for bequeathing him such expansive power, Barack Obama. I'm sure that's surprising to a lot of listeners, and uh, I'd kind of like to learn what you, what he meant by that as well. Well, Ryzen is, of course, 100% right, because he was targeted by it. He would know personally, although I think he's being a little poetic in that line. It sounds nice to say one man. Of course, there are a lot of people, and we can't, we'd be remiss if you don't mention George Bush. A lot of this began with George Bush and the so-called war on terror, which was always fake. I mean, it was used to to expand the police state here at home and spy on us, as oh, yeah. you know about the NSA. But we can't just blame Bush, of course. Obama drastically expanded what Bush began, this kind of police state with spying under the NSA and targeting whistleblowers. And James Risen would know because James Risen, who was himself a New York Times investigative journalist, now he's at The Intercept, and James Risen, he was reporting on U.S. government information that the U.S. government did not want him to leak, and they tried to go after both him and the whistleblower who potentially leaked to him, 
and it's not entirely clear who that is. The government claims that it was Jeffrey Sterling, although they, Jeffrey Sterling is a CIA, former CIA analyst who was arrested and charged and imprisoned under the Espionage Act for releasing information. And the U.S. government claims that Jeffrey Sterling, the CIA analyst, leaked this information to James Risen to the New York Times. James Risen, much to his credit, he refused to reveal his sources and was actually incarcerated for a bit of time wow. because he refused to reveal who his source was. And to this day, he never has, which is, which is very brave. I mean, because James Risen at the New York Times understood that if he revealed his sources, it would have a huge chilling effect on the freedom of the press. And that would set a precedent where the U.S. government can force journalists in the future to reveal who their sources are. But that happened under the Obama administration. And like I said, this began under Bush, but under Obama, it accelerated to the point where the Obama administration's Justice Department, under Eric Holder, they used the Espionage Act to try to, to charge whistleblowers who leaked to journalists more than any other president in history. Wow. And I think it was something like nine times. Don't quote me on the number. I don't know the exact number. But the point is that this was a major time. I think there are a lot of things happening. You had the economic crisis, and you had the collapse of faith in a lot of these governments, and in the, and in the conventional two-party system, that faith collapsed with the global recession. You also had the rise of this kind of techno-libertarian movement in groups like WikiLeaks and Anonymous. And then you simply had the kind of technology that made it much easier for people to become whistleblowers and to leak information. And a lot of this came to the fore under the Obama administration. And I'm not blaming just Obama, of course. There's a large government happening. But Obama does deserve a lot of credit or responsibility for for, uh, exacerbating this war on whistleblowers. And look, I get that any government doesn't want people publishing their secret documents but there are different ways to deal with that. Yeah. And the Obama administration continued in the Bush administration's footsteps of just cracking down in hope of scaring off other whistleblowers. The strategy that's, was, that's if we throw this whistleblower in prison for the rest of his life, hopefully it will encourage other whistleblowers to not blow the whistle. <laughs> blow the and whistle. of course, predictably... This bipartisan legacy, this attack on whistleblowers that began under Bush was expanded under Obama, has continued further under Trump. And now we have we have multiple cases, including a most recent case of the third source that leads to the intercept that is now being charged by the Trump administration. So, you know, as a journalist, it's pretty scary to see what's going on and to see the repercussions of this. Yeah, it's meant to be scary. The, the brave new world we're in. Yeah, it's meant to be scary. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. Our show is Keeping Democracy Alive. It's a group effort, again, folks. Our guest today is Ben Norton. We're talking about uh, discussing his article, Trump's Charges Against Assange Are an Historic Attack on Press Freedoms, Media and Obama Helped Set the Stage. And as you say, the tragic truth is that the blame goes all around. The reality is that a President Hillary Clinton likely would have launched the same full-fledged attack on press freedoms. Tell us about that, please. Well, 
for instance, we know just from Secretary Clinton herself that when Assange was arrested in Britain, she said that he must face justice and, and implied strong support for what was happening. Mm. And, of course, the Clinton administration hated WikiLeaks, and I, and I get why, because WikiLeaks published John Podesta's emails, published the DNC leaks, so they have a lot of reason to dislike WikiLeaks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she herself has, has made that clear. And Joe Biden, yes. as I also mentioned in my article, yeah. has made it clear. Joe Biden uh, referred to referred to Assange as a techno-terrorist, as a cyber-terrorist. Yes. And again, he's not implicated in any, any violence. He all he did was publish information. Wow. So unfortunately, we see once again that when it comes to national security issues, and I use that term in scare quotes, I hate the term national security because it, it's used to mean so many things and it's ambiguous yeah. purposely. Really, But when it comes to the issues, the foreign issues of so-called national security, often mainstream Republican and Democrats are really on the same page. And, you yeah. know, there are some admirable exceptions. Bernie Sanders has been pushing back. Tulsi Gabbard, Rokana. There is a, a growing wing yes. of kind of anti-war voices. Even yes. more impressive, Ilhan Omar has been very impressive yes. and has been grilling people like Elliot Abrams, who's a war criminal. <laughs> he is. So there is, there is a growing pushback, but in the kind of Clintonian establishment wing, where you have figures like Biden, you have figures like Cory Booker, uh, uh, Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, those kind of more centrist Democrats they, who supported the Iraq war, who supported the war in Afghanistan, and who supported the war in Syria, they have also demonized and gone along with this, this kind of witch hunt against Julian Assange. And the ultimate irony of all this is that Trump, who, you know, he frequently lies. The guy's a pathological no. liar. It's not surprising that he breaks his promises. But the ultimate irony of all of this is that this man who, for opportunistic political reasons right. and personal gain, who said that he loved WikiLeaks, yeah. he is the one now who will potentially throw Assange in prison for, for multiple lifetimes. So, again, I'm not trying to say that it's uniquely Hillary Clinton's fault or Obama's fault. What I'm right. saying is that as a foreign policy journalist, which is what I focus on, we a lot of people focus on domestic policy, but it's just you can see that illusion kind of dissolve when you look at how bipartisan the establishment wing of the Democratic Party and the kind of mainstream Republicans are. I mean, there are also admirable Republicans like Rand Paul, who I strongly disagree with in domestic policy, but Rand Paul is also very anti-war and anti-intervention. Great foreign policy. But unfortunately, the establishment Democrats and Republicans, when it comes to foreign wars, now the war drive against Venezuela and Iran, and then when it comes to things like Julian Assange and WikiLeaks, they're all pretty much on the same page. Yeah, it's terrible, really. The the current we talked about a bunch of uh, uh, Democrats. The current celebrity candidate is Pete Buttigieg. I found it revealing that he said he opposed Obama's clemency for Chelsea Manning. Not many people know about that. What does that tell us about him and his attitudes towards press freedom? Do you think? Mayor Pete. Well, unfortunately, I do not have much faith or confidence at all in Pete Buttigieg. He's, he's resisted talking about policy a lot and has tried to make politics a matter of personality. 
And when he does talk about policy, he is tries to be kind of ambiguous. So, for instance, he has flip-flops on the issue of universal health care. He has said he supported universal health care, which is good, but he has not come out firmly in support of Medicare for all. And I think for me, that's a non-starter. I think every Democratic candidate needs to be on board with with Medicare for all. This should be an uncontroversial policy in much of the industrialized world. In Europe, even in many other countries, this is simply taken for granted, even by the right-wing parties. The fact that we don't have this is, is ridiculous. But but the fact that people just said that about Chelsea Manning, unfortunately, wasn't surprising, but it's ridiculous. And it's not just him. I mean, I don't want to just blame him. Yeah. Even mainstream human rights organizations, Human Rights Watch has not said anything about Chelsea Manning. And again, because we see that when you when you throw the phrase national security in, uh, people just get scared yeah. and they, they start walking in eggshells because mm. it's began under under Bush, but they say, Well, the government has to be able to defend its own national security interests. Mm. But like I said, this is very frequently, I would say almost all of the time, it's simply used as a kind of lazy excuse to justify whatever they want to do. They say, Well, we have to do this in the interest of our national security. But once again, it's, it's just a lazy excuse. And when you look at someone like Pete Buttigieg, who, I mean, frankly, uh, this is kind of an ad hominem attack, but when you look at his time in college, he actually wrote about in his book about at Harvard University that he opposed a student strike and that his friends, he and his friends, they were actually making fun of some of the Harvard activists who were doing a student lockdown on campus. Uh, that, that, for me, says so much, that when there's a student strike, he doesn't see himself on the side of the striking students. He sees himself as the, the liaison who will cross the picket line, mm. just like Bill and Hillary did when they were in, in college, ironically, and work with the administration. I think that says a lot about what they see as where their political role and priorities lie, unlike someone like Bernie Sanders, who incredibly, this didn't get that much coverage, and the ultimate symbolism, Bernie Sanders is actually using his email list not just to get new supporters, but actually he's using his email list and network to tell people to go out on the picket line. Yes. And we've seen cases of the Bernie Sanders campaign oh, all telling people... If you're in this state, you should go join this picket line. Right. I think that's incredible, and, and it shows the kind of symbolic and political differences between a candidate like Pete Buttigieg, who's you know kind of centrist establishment oh, yeah. Democrat, and someone like Bernie Sanders, who is really fighting for the people, not not to be. He's not fighting for his own career. I I still think that a lot of people. Are, are drawn to that. They, they want to shake things up a bit and, you know, get back to uh, the roots of, of who we are as a people. And, you know, in the United States, a solid journalistic tradition is ferreting out sources to get to the facts which are intentionally kept from public scrutiny. Our, our proud history of blockbuster whistleblowing is thanks to the press daring to publish such revelations. How do you think things stand now? Is there enough public awareness, I obviously I don't think there is, but uh, regarding Assange and the threats to our First Amendment, uh, are, are people starting to get this, do you think? Any sense of that? It's a little frightening. 
I do think so. I have a lot of faith in the American people. Now, before I get to that, I want to I want to correct one thing really quickly. That I mean, you are certainly right in the sense that this new campaign to demonize journalists and whistleblowers it is somewhat unprecedented. But I don't want to engage in rosy retrospection. Sure. We can't forget that Daniel Ellsberg, oh, who leaked right. the Pentagon Papers, the first whistleblower. Daniel Ellsberg was facing 115, that's 115, over 100 years in prison, but the only reason, he was charged under the, under the Espionage Act, and he was charged with yeah. theft and also conspiracy, just like Assange. The only reason that Ellsberg was not thrown in prison for the rest of his life is because of the own government misconduct that the government admitted, because they were illegally ga- gathering evidence against him uh, to try to throw him in prison, oh, and no. that was exposed, and the government had to just drop the case. And Ooh. so so there is an actual precedent yes. of Correct. really harshly going after these whistleblowers, but Ellsberg got very lucky that they uncovered the U.S. government's own misconduct in that case. Unfortunately, I don't see that happening in this case. Yeah, they're smartened up. You know, I have hope that that the American people will be on the right side, but we'll, we'll see. But uh, like I said, I think that if you look at the American people, for better or for worse, they don't have faith in the U.S. corporate media. And I think that, you know, as a journalist, I think that, that the skepticism is warranted. Sure. Because we've seen yeah. again and again and again that the U.S. corporate media has been willing to carry the water for things like the invasion of Iraq. Yep. Now they're trying to do the same thing for a war in Iran. They did it for the Vietnam War. So there's a lot of reason to be skeptical and critical of the media. And I think things can and should be better. But I actually think the problem is not the people themselves, because it's a, it's a contradictory process. People know to be skeptical of the media, but all they know about WikiLeaks and, and Assange <laughs> is from the media. So it's a kind of complex process where people are skeptical of what the news tells them, but at the same time, that's all they know. there aren't that many alternative media outlets, which is why what you're doing is important. It's so important to have these alternative, independent news outlets, like your show, like what we try to do at the Gray Zone. And I have confidence in, in people that if we give them the proper and correct information, uh, that people will make good, good decisions and policies. And that's why we're seeing the rise, finally, of these kinds of insurgent, prog- insurgent progressives like Bernie Sanders and Tulsi Gabbard and others who are fighting for the truth. Indeed, and I like to think that, you know, real conservatives are about conserving our First Amendment. And if that's the case, then we should make out okay. Thank you so much. If people want to read more of your stuff, uh, your website is bennorton.com, and there's also The Gray Zone. Thank you so much for being with us. Fascinating and of important course. topic. It was a great discussion. Thanks for having me. Thank you. It's about freedom, folks. Freedom. 